0: Well, as Ben alluded, we are talking about the armor of God. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, that's where we're going to end up here in a few moments. I wanted to try to sort of tie this all together with uh, the season of Advent and with what we're focusing on today in that, uh, in that Christian calendar. As Epiphany is coming up later this week, we focus on the wise men, right? And as we've sung about that. But in Advent, we focus on the hope, the peace, The joy, the love that Jesus brings. And we talk about the birth of Christ and how He came to bring glory to God and and peace on earth. And all those things are wonderful. They play really well on Christmas cards. Not so much some of the grittier, messier parts of this story, like the part the wise men introduces to this story. We love the part of the wise men. I had several beautiful Christmas cards this year that had wise men on it. But when the wise men came to see Jesus they also brought some attention on Jesus that was not quite welcome King Herod King Herod was a bloodthirsty jealous king and when he heard this news that there was a king of the Jews born well there can't be but one king of the Jews and Herod he wasn't he wasn't a you know uh, he, he was willing to kill his own children to protect his throne so certainly some some other kid that's claiming to be king of the Jews was nothing to him and He sent out His soldiers to try to find Jesus and murdered the innocent children in Bethlehem and caused Mary and Joseph and Jesus to to flee to Egypt. That part of the story reminds us Jesus had an enemy. We have an enemy. Ben talked about that enemy. We have an opponent. There's a reason Jesus had to come to bring peace on earth. It's because we are in the midst of a spiritual war. And it's a war that's been raging on earth since Adam and Eve first took and ate that forbidden fruit. And as Christians, we are in the thick of this battle, a spiritual battle that rages on today. And we as Christians fight this battle on three fronts. Those three fronts are the world, the flesh, and the devil. We fight this spiritual battle against the world, against our own sinful flesh. Against the devil. Paul mentions these a couple of chapters earlier. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath. Now, of course, when he talks about the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, he's talking about Satan and his demonic foot soldiers. We are locked into this battle with spiritual forces, and Satan is their commander-in-chief. He's the one in charge of them. And this battle can sometimes be hard for us to see. And oftentimes, a lot of people want to deny that this battle even exists. Now, another front of this conflict is with the ways of the world. Paul mentions that, the ways of the world. What he means by that is is the fallen systems and values and philosophies of the world apart from God, those who are opposed to God's kingdom work. Another way to understand the world is to think of it as society, culture apart from God. The systems and values and philosophies of men Divorced from the truth and the ways of God—that's what it means by the world. And doesn't it seem like this is more clearly defined today than ever before? I mean, Satan's always been at work in the world, but it seems like that for a lot of, especially maybe the past 200 years or so during American history, it kind of has seemed to us almost like it's—he's it's, he's working, you know, covertly, right? It, it, it's kind of—he's trying to, to, to wage this battle secretly. But now it's open warfare. And that divide between our lost world, between society apart from God and the kingdom of God seems to be more clear now than ever before. There's no denying it. And the third front Paul calls our fleshly desires and thoughts. This is the old, sinful, fallen nature that we inherited from Adam and from Eve. Thank you very much. It's a nature opposed to God, opposed to anything that's spiritual opposed to anything that that pleases God. It's our inner struggle against what John called the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It's what James talked about when we were back in this summer, if you can remember, talking about James. It's that part of us that lures us away and entraps us. And when we follow that path, its ultimate result is death. And it seems to me, again, it just seems to me like we're facing more temptations from Satan, more heresies from the world than ever before, and all of that just feeds ever more into these inner struggles that we have with temptation, with doubt, with with sinful desires and thoughts. When we talk about spiritual warfare, it's important we keep these three fronts ever in our mind, that we are at war with the devil, with, with, with these evil spiritual forces, with the world, with the fallen systems of humanity, and with ourselves, with our own sinful, fallen nature. But it's also important that we keep in mind, as we've sung about this morning, Jesus has already won the war. Jesus has already been victorious in this. He assured our victory in His death and in His resurrection, and He's promised us He's coming again to rule and reign and to make all things new. So as we face these fronts, we have to remember that our, our Commander-in-Chief, our King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, has already overcome all three. He's already overcome the world, He's overcome the devil, and even our own sinful flesh. As Warren Wiersbe said, he said, as believers, we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. That's a big difference. We simply have to claim Christ's victory for ourselves. We rejoice in the victory that Jesus has already won, which is what I hope this sermon series on the full armor of God will help us do in the weeks to come. As I was researching this and studying for the sermon series, I came across the four pillars of readiness, the four pillars of combat readiness that the United States Army has. These are the things that they have for every battalion, every, every troop, every soldier. Every, everybody has to have these four things if they are going to be ready for combat. It's manning, training, equipping, and leader development. Those are the four pillars of the United States Army. Well, here in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13, Paul gives us four pillars of combat readiness for us as Christians. And so as we look at this this morning, I want us to evaluate ourselves. I want you to ask yourself, am I combat ready for what this year holds? Am I combat ready for the spiritual struggles I know that I'm going to face? So let's read together. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Paul writes, "...Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by His vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil." For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. The first pillar of readiness Paul gives us is that we are enabled by God's mighty power. We know that we are combat ready because we are enabled by God's mighty power. That's what it talks about there in verse 10. Now, the Greek word there, be strengthened, is a passive imperative, meaning find your strength in. Allow the Lord to make you strong. It's a passive. It's an imperative. It's a command, but it's something that we allow to happen to us It doesn't mean man up. It doesn't mean get out there and do a bunch of push-ups and build up those muscles and make yourself strong. It's not about my strength. It's about God making me strong from His ready reserves of power and might. His vast, it says, His vast strength He gives to us. One author wrote, receiving an empowerment from God goes hand in hand with realizing we've exhausted our own. Whereas Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 12. He'd been struggling with what he calls a thorn in the flesh, and, and he's been struggling with this. And he's praying and asking God to remove it. But God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul says, Therefore I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. We are to be strengthened in the Lord's vast strength. It's like in First Samuel chapter thirty, David and his men were were preparing to go out and they were they were going out to fight the Philistines. But while they were gone to fight the Philistines, another enemy tribe, the Amalekites, they came in behind him and they attacked the town where David and his men were living. They burned it to the ground and they kidnapped all their women and children and took them away. And so verses 3 and 4 of 1 Samuel 30 say that when David and his men arrived at the town, they found it burned. Their wives, sons, daughters had been kidnapped. David and the troops with him wept loudly until... They had no strength left to weep. They had no strength left even to weep. It seemed all hope was lost. They were exhausted with grief. And just when it seemed like things couldn't get any worse, David's men began to blame him, even to the point of wanting to stone him to death. What could David do? How could he defend himself and rally his men and more importantly rescue their families from the enemy? He had no strength left. But we come to verse 6. David was in an extremely difficult position because the troops talked about stoning him for they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. He had no strength of his own, but he found strength in the Lord his God. And when we have expended our strength, maybe even to the point that we can't even cry anymore, we are so exhausted. We, are so, we feel so defeated. We can always find strength in the Lord our God. Maybe you've been exhausted from the daily battle for the soul of your family. We may get exhausted from battling for the innocence of our children, for the freedom to worship and live out our faith. We may face that battle. We can always find strength in the Lord's ready reserves and His vast Mighty power. His grace will always be sufficient. We know we are ready for combat when we remember that we are already strengthened by the Lord. And part of that all sufficient grace is that He equips us. And that's the second pillar of combat readiness: we are equipped with God's honor, we're uh, with God's armor, we're enabled by God's mighty power, we're equipped with God's armor. Now, notice here in etwas, in this passage, Paul refers to it as the full armor of God. Now, the Greek word there is panoplia, and panoplia means a complete set. It's a complete set of armory and weaponry. It's everything that a soldier needs for battle. There's nothing God has left out. Now, naturally, and, and we'll become more and more familiar with this in the weeks to come, As Paul is writing this, his audience is thinking of the Roman armor, right? The armor of a Roman soldier. And and again, we'll talk more about that as we go along. But there's also something from Israel's past that Paul is drawing on. He's not just drawing on the, the everyday imagery of these Roman soldiers all around them. He's also bringing something from the book of Isaiah. We heard this in our Old Testament reading. Isaiah, in his prophecy, he talks about how God put on righteousness as body armor and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and He wrapped Himself in zeal as in a cloak here in Isaiah. God is putting on the armor Himself. God is taking up this armor to do what no one else could do, to fight for His people. To defend them against the enemy. To rescue them from sin. This is what God does. He brings us... Salvation. So this armor in Isaiah, it represents God's acting on our behalf. So that tells us right there that this armor of God is not some kind of a magic spell that we cast. It's not that, oh, if I just read this every morning, if I just pray and put on this armor every day, it's like some kind of good luck charm that's going to keep me from trouble. That's not the way this works. In Isaiah, the armor was about what God does on our behalf. Well, guess what? In Ephesians 6, it's still about what God does on our behalf. As Ben mentioned in his children's sermon, the spiritual armor is largely defensive. It's all about defending us and protecting us. The only offensive part of the armor is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Just as we fight in God's strength, so we are defended by God's gracious working on our behalf. Now, two things about this armor I want us to see. The first is the armor's placement. The armor's placement. Armor is effective only if it's worn properly, right? It has to be put on the proper way. It does no good if you pick and choose what pieces you want to wear or if you only wear it the way you want to wear it. Or if you only wear the parts of it that are comfortable for you to wear. It doesn't do you any good that way. This is is why troops have to undergo inspections, right? They have inspections and they undergo rigorous training to make sure that they are maintaining their weapons and their uniform and their gear in the proper way so that they are equipped and ready for battle. They can't just dress however they want to dress. God equips us with His spiritual armor, but it's up to us to keep it in proper working order and to put it on. He gives it to us, but we're the ones who have to put it on and wear it. We're the ones who have to make use of it. Now, it seems as if Paul is repeating himself here because he challenges us both to put on and then he says, take up the full armor of God. Which is it? Is it take it up or put it on? It's both. We have to put on the armor because, again, it does us no good just sitting around. You know, it's been said, if you leave part of your your gear, you know, over on the on the bench, run right on the field, then you're you're in a world of hurt. You got to put it on. You have to wear it. But we also must take it up. That word means to bear it. We must bear our armor. Now, if you remember from you know, maybe reading the story of David and Goliath, or you remember from history that oftentimes the elite soldiers, the generals, the kings, they had what? They had armor bearers, right? They had people that would bear their armor for them as they went and marched over into the battlefield because the armor was heavy. It was heavy. You got hot in it. It wasn't very comfortable. So the king, he had somebody to bear his armor. But Paul is telling us we must bear our own armor. It's not too heavy a load for us to carry. We We can't be like a, a soldier that might be tempted to, oh, well, you know, this piece of armor is a little heavy, it, it's a little cumbersome, I'm in the heat of battle, maybe I take this off. You do that and it could, it could mean the end of your life. It's there to protect you for a reason. We can't be tempted to just lay aside certain parts of the armor of God and have oh, the sword of the Spirit. I don't really, you know, my Sunday school teacher, the preacher, they know this stuff for me. I don't, I don't need to read it. I don't need to carry this sword. I've got other people to carry the sword for me. No, we need every part of the armor. In that thick of spiritual battle, we must endure and ensure that our armor is properly worn, that we are bringing this with us. It's positioned just as we need it because God doesn't give us anything useless. There's not a part of this armor that, that, is, that is optional. It is all necessary for spiritual victory. And that brings us to the armor's purpose. The armor, as I said, is mainly defensive. So it's about what God has done and continues to do for us so we can fight in His strength. So the purpose of the armor is our third combat readiness pillar here, and that is that we can endure Satan's schemes. It's the purpose of the armor. So we can endure Satan's schemes. In December of 1944... World War II appeared to be drawing to a close. The Allied troops had already, you know, back in June they had stormed the beaches of Normandy, they had invaded mainland Europe, they had successfully pushed the German forces all the way through France, they liberated Paris, the Germans were fairly contained within their own borders, and few Allied commanders believed that Hitler's army was capable of launching any kind of offensive. And so they set up camp for the winter. They even the USO was bringing in entertainers and athletes and celebrities to entertain the troops, and, and they were just thinking they're biding their time, and, and before they knew it, they were going to be heading home. Little did they know that German assault troops were assembling on the German-Belgian border, and Hitler was preparing to launch his last great offensive of the war. Nazi Germany pinned all its hopes for victory on one last attack, In the snow laden Ardennes Forest, what we call the Battle of the Bulge. An offensive by three German armies across a 75 mile front. The attack included more than a million soldiers. And it caught the American forces, the Allied forces, unprepared. They weren't expecting this. It ruptured their defensive line, surrounded most of an infantry division. They seized key crossroads and they advanced their spearheads toward the, the, the heart of the supply line in Antwerp. That's where they were heading to completely cut off the Allied forces from resupply. And this is what created the bulge in the Allied line. So the Germans were kind of surrounding them on, on all these sides. Now, of course, those back in France that were recently liberated, they were very uncomfortable about this. And they wondered, could the American forces, could the Allied forces stand their ground and halt Germany's offensive? At the critical road junctions of St. Vith and Baston, American tankers and paratroopers fought off repeated attacks. And when the acting commander of the 100th Air Force, uh, Air, Air Force uh, Division, when they were asked you know, to, by their German counterpart to surrender, he simply replied, nuts. Now, we are not going to surrender. And I like how the U.S. Army Center of Military History describes the story of the Battle of the Bulge as above all the story of American soldiers, often isolated and unaware of the overall picture, they did their part to slow the Nazi advance, whether by delaying armored spearheads with obstinate defenses of vital crossroads, moving or burning critical gasoline stocks to keep them from the fuel-hungry German tanks, or coming up with questions on arcane Americana to stump Possible Nazi infiltrators. The American soldiers kept their stand against an enemy assault until help came from General George S. Patton's third U.S. Army. They counterattacked the German flank, they pushed them back, and destroyed all hope of Nazi success. And a few months later, Adolf Hitler took his life, and the war in Europe was over. But without the heroic stand of American troops and a brutally cold winter battle. Who knows what the outcome would have been. And the objective of those troops was very simple. They weren't tasked with taking the war to Berlin and defeating Hitler themselves. They weren't charged with winning the war. All they were told to do was stand your ground. Hold the line. Don't let the Germans advance any further. That's what Paul was telling us to do here in Ephesians 6. He's telling us to stand firm. Don't retreat. Don't give the devil any ground. Endure his attacks. Because guess what? Our war is already won. Jesus' death and resurrection is our spiritual D-Day. Victory is is, is assured for us. Satan's fate is sealed. His power is limited and temporary on this earth, and his days are numbered. Amen? But we can't let down our guard. We can't set up camp and just sit back and entertain ourselves until Jesus comes. That's not what we do. We are in our own battle of the bulge. And every day we face Satan's futile attack, his last ditch efforts in a war he knows he's already lost. He just wants to try to undermine God's redemptive work in the world as much as he can. We're called to stand. Don't retreat. Don't give in to Satan's temptations. Don't listen to his accusations. Don't believe his lies. God's not asking us to storm the gates of hell and take Satan out ourselves, is He? No. Jesus has already done that. Our enemy's already defeated. And before His ultimate eternal demise, Satan's going to launch as many attacks on God's people as he can. He wants to take as many people as he can with Him into the lake of fire. So notice here in verses 11 and 13 and even on into 14, this repetition. Stand in verse 11. Resist in verse 13. Take your stand in verse 13. Stand therefore in verse 14. Do you understand the chief aim? Our strategy here is to what? Stand. Stand. Stand firm. Don't retreat. Don't give up. Satan's power and authority in this world has been broken and there's an ultimate day coming when he and all of his minions will be destroyed. And you know what that means? That means we can fight with confidence. That means we can stand with our heads held high because all things will ultimately be put under the feet of Jesus Christ. As someone else wrote, Christ's total decisive win on the cross doesn't eliminate our battles. But it empowers us to engage the enemy without fear. We don't have to fear the enemy. He's already defeated. He's already been declawed. When you're tempted to sin, resist. When you're discouraged in your spiritual walk, don't retreat. When Satan whispers to you lies about what the truth of God's Word says, stand your ground. Don't give him an inch. Verse 11 mentions... The schemes of the devil. We're to to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, the Greek word there is methodius. It's where we get our word method. Resist Satan's methods. In his commentary on this passage, Kent Hughes tells us that Satan, I love this, this is so great. He says Satan has been honing his methods for millennia. He is an accomplished philosopher, theologian, and psychologist. He's had thousands of years to study it. Satan's good at what he does. We can't discount him. Like Hitler at the Battle of the Bulge, he's not going to go quietly. Like Herod, he's not going to just give up his power and his influence and control in this world quietly. His methods are sinister, they're deceptive, and they're deadly. And one of those deceptive methods is that Satan likes to masquerade as an agent of God. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 11. He said that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no great surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And for that reason, the final pillar for us to know that we are combat ready is that we can identify the enemy. We have to be able to identify our enemy. And the first thing Paul tells us, he's very upfront. The first thing Paul once tells us is who our enemy is not, and he says that our enemy is not physical. Now, now understanding who the enemy is not is another critical piece of training uh, for soldiers, right? Especially if they're in some in urban warfare, maybe they're going even into like a hostage situation to rescue, you know, American hostages from somewhere. You got to know who the enemy is and who the civilians are and who the hostages are, right? Because your goal is not to just go in there and just blow up the building and take out all the enemies. No, your goal is to rescue the hostages. And it does no good when you go killing civilians and you go killing the people you're there to rescue, the people that you're there to liberate and to save, right? Well, the same is true in spiritual warfare. We have to differentiate between who the true enemies are and those that are holding hostage. Those people made in the image of God that Jesus loves, for whom He died, the people that we are sent to share the good news of his salvation with, right? We've got to differentiate between our true enemies and these people that Jesus died to save. Now, our enemy uses flesh and blood to attack and obstruct God's work in the world, but if we fight against people, even people that Satan uses, we actually are doing his work for him. Because not only is he using them, they are his victims. They're the very people that we are sent to proclaim the good news of salvation to you. That's the mistake that Peter made in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when he took out the sword and he attacked the temple guard that was arresting Jesus? And what did Jesus do in that moment? He told Peter to stop it, put the sword away, he picked up the the ear and he healed the man because that man was not the enemy. It's the same mistake Moses made when he killed the Egyptian guard and and buried his body in the sand and that led to him having to flee to the land of Midian. He was attacking the wrong thing. The only way to fight spiritual battles against spiritual enemies is with spiritual weapons. That's what we need. Weapons like the Word of God and and prayer. And listen, in today's polarizing environment, it's real easy to get confused about who the enemy is. It's real easy today. And I think that's by design of, of Satan himself. Political opponents those who are attacking the very biblical values that we hold dear, those who are undermining our freedoms, those who hate and revile and persecute us, listen, these are the very people that Jesus told us to love, to pray for, and to do good to. Right? Those who persecute you, those who revile you, those who hate you, those who say false things about you because of me, those are the people that Jesus says we're to love and to serve and to pray for. Now, that seems hard, doesn't it? Until you remember they're not the enemy. They're the ones needing rescue. They're the ones that have been deceived. Our enemy is not physical, but our enemy is spiritual. People tend to address problems, especially today, without mentioning anything spiritual, right? Because if you start talking about spiritual causes to problems, people start looking at you like you're a little kooky. And so the result of that is that you end up only looking to medical or scientific or or practical solutions to your problems, not that those can't be helpful, but underlying all of those things, there's always a spiritual element. And so it's foolish to neglect the spiritual. Yes, we are complex beings. We have brains and we have bodies that get sick, that get injured, that need care, medical care, psychological care. Yes, but guess what? We are also spiritual. And we need spiritual care as well. Beneath all of our social, psychological, economic, medical struggles rages a spiritual battle that we are too quick to discount. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils, the demons. Okay, two errors. One is to believe in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel in an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I'm sorry, one is to disbelieve in their existence, <laughs> and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We need to avoid falling into those two extremes. One is to discount and say there is no spiritual realm. There are no spiritual causes for, for, for the issues that we face, for the challenges in our world. There, there is no Satan. There are no demons. That, that's an egregious error, but it's equally egregious to say that every I've got, got a hangnail. It's bothering me. It's the devil. No. My football team lost. It was Satan. No. No, we can't do that. Sometimes a sickness is just a sickness. Sometimes the loss of a job is the economy. Sometimes a broken relationship is because of of our own mistakes. We don't need to assign everything to satanic forces. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan can't use those negative things, right? We talked about that in James. He can use the afflictions we suffer to tempt us, to cause us to doubt, to draw us away from God, but he's not necessarily the cause of it. Now, Paul says that our chief enemy is the devil. Now, that that term devil means accuser. He's the accuser because he accuses us before the throne of God. He tempts us to sin, and then he says to God, Aha! You see what he did? And God says, I don't see it because he's under the blood of Jesus. He's also called Satan, which means the enemy, the adversary, because he's our enemy and he's God's enemy. The Scripture also calls him the tempter, the murderer, the liar. He's compared to a devouring lion, a deceitful serpent, and an angel of light. Satan is powerful, but his power comes nowhere near the power of God. Satan's been allowed temporary dominance in this sin-sick world among those people that do not know the grace of God. Satan can only be at one place at one time. Have you ever thought about that? So people want to say the devil made me do it. Well, first of all, the devil can't make you do anything. Secondly, Satan can only be in one place at one time. He's not omnipresent. Now, he has demonic forces, he has these spiritual forces of darkness that make him appear to be omnipresent. Sort of like Herod. I read somebody say the other day that the reason Herod built all these fortresses and palaces all over Israel is because he wanted the people to think of him as being omnipresent. He wanted people to always be able to look at some building and wonder, is Herod in there today? Satan does that. He mimics the omnipresence and the omnipotence of God. He has neither. Now, Paul calls these foot soldiers of Satan, he calls them rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, evil spiritual forces. And this spiritual army of darkness lies just outside of our physical sight and and are constantly at war for the souls of people. And they may not be flesh and blood, but that doesn't make them any less real. They are real. One commentary described them as having their bowstrings constantly pulled, taut with the arrows of theological doubt, irrational fear, temptation to sin, and soul-damning heresy always on the string, ready to be released into the hearts of unsuspecting bystanders. They're out there. They're at work. So our enemies are not those who are caught up in sin. Whatever that sin might be, Our enemies are not those who are confused about how God created them, male or female. They're not not people who harbor bigotry and racism in their hearts. Those are not our enemies. Our enemies are those authorities and world powers that are promoting and seeking to normalize those things. Our enemies are those powers in the world that are actively seeking to corrupt the minds and souls of children, thriving off the moral confusion social division and hatred that these empty man-made philosophies engender in us. That's the enemy. It's these philosophies. It's these cosmic powers, these spiritual forces that are strategically staged in societies and cultures all around the world to spread the hate, the lies, the division, the spiritual cancer into people's minds, into families, into schools, into communities, into churches, and into nations. That's our enemy. We cannot be ignorant of Satan's devices. He masquerades as an angel of light. He makes himself look good. He makes himself sound reasonable. He makes himself look appealing. But he is seeking to blind our minds to the truth of God's Word. And as we explore each part of the armor of God in the weeks to come. We're going to learn more about Satan's schemes and how to identify them and how to guard against them. That's the reason God has given us this armor, to stand firm against the devil's methods. Maybe this morning you need to be rescued. Maybe you're one of those that's been deceived. There's shame in that. We've all been deceived at one point, right? We all were born into this world deceived. Maybe you're one that needs to be rescued from Satan's dominion this morning. If you've not placed your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, for the forgiveness of your sin, if you've not confessed in your heart that Jesus is Lord and, with, and, and believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus died and rose from the dead, you can do that today. You can put your faith, your hope, your trust, not in yourself, not in me, not in this church, not in your good deeds, but in what Jesus Christ has already accomplished for you. It's a gift. It's a gift that He came to give you. And I invite you this morning as we stand in a moment to sing to come this morning and to simply say, you know what? I I need Jesus. I believe He died to rescue me. To rescue me from slavery to sin, slavery to myself, slavery to Satan. I want to be free. Amen. Free to live, free to love as we sang earlier today. Jesus can do that for you. I hope you'll trust Him today. I hope today you'll defect from Satan's dominion of darkness and come into the kingdom of the light and love of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're already a Christian this morning and and, and as we approach this new year, you need to recommit yourself to being one of the Lord's army. You know, to re-enlist. Maybe you've gone a little AWOL and you've taken some of that armor and you've put it aside. You've put the sword of the Spirit aside. Maybe this year you want to recommit. Say, I want to spend time in God's Word every day this year. I'm going to be a person of prayer this year. I'm going to commit myself to being more faithful in worship. To focusing more on on worshiping God than worrying about the things in my life. The altar is open for you to come this morning and recommit yourself to stand firm and to fight the good fight. Maybe God is calling you and your family to unite with this band of brothers and sisters and to stand your ground here with the people of First Baptist Thompson. Whatever God is speaking to you, let's stand together and pray. And as we sing, I hope that you'll respond. Father, thank you that though our enemy is real, the victory we have in Jesus Christ is even more real. It is a reality. It is not just a promise. It is something that has already been accomplished for us. And so I pray, Father, as we approach this year, and we know there are going to be things we struggle against. We know there are going to be obstacles in our path. We know, Father, there's going to be worries and doubts and fears that come our way, temptations we're going to struggle with. Lord, we know that the enemy is very real and very present. God, give us the strength to stand, Your strength. Help us to understand, and even more than understand, to put on and use the armor that You have already given us. Help us to stand firm against all that will come our way that is not of You. And God, give us the wisdom to be able to understand who our true enemy is. It's nobody in our family. It's not our neighbor. It's not our coworker. It's not our competition. It's not any politician. Lord, these people are not our enemies. If they don't know you as their Lord and Savior, they're the victims. They're the ones needing rescue. God, give us a burden for the lost. Give us a passion for sharing the gospel and for going into the enemy's territory and rescuing those who are perishing. We ask it all in Jesus' name.